Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Science and Technology Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nupur. Today, we're speaking to Sandeep Mertia and Akash Solang about the lives of Databook, an edited volume of essays on computational cultures from India, edited by Sandeep and published open access by the Institute of Network Cultures. Sandeep is a PhD student at the Department of Media, Culture and Communication and Urban Doctoral Fellow at New York University. Akash, who is a contributing author in this volume, is a PhD candidate in Anthropology and South Asian Studies at the University of Toronto. For full disclosure, I'm also a contributing author in this volume, so this is perhaps going to be more of a chat among friends using all of our deep familiarity with computational cultures in India as a springboard. Welcome, Akash and Sandeep. Hi, Nupur. Thank you so much for organizing this. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation. Hi, Nupur. Thanks for having me. Hi. Hi, Akash. Um, To start us off, please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your academic journey, and your primary research areas of interest. Um, I'll start. Uh, Akash and I went to the same college, uh, Dhirubhai Ambani Institute in Gandhinagar, which is your hometown. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so we were lucky in terms of at least uh, uh, to find some amazing social scientists within our engineering program. Uh, Professors Shiv Vishwanathan, Vishwajit Pandya, Ganesh Devi, Professor Madhumita Majumdar, who gave us a flavor of what it means to do technology interdisciplinarily and to think technology in in more ways than one in critical SDS ways as well. So that was the uh, launching pad uh, or or the first beginnings, uh, if I were to put it that way. And uh, we did different kinds of research projects. For me, it was rural ethnographies of uh, ICT, 4D and e-governance programs uh, and so on. I landed up at uh, Sarai CSDS 
in Delhi after graduating where I was for three years before starting the PhD. And this book is, uh, is a culmination of all the work that we did at Sarai. So, uh, yeah, that's my story. Uh, Sandeep and I overlapped, as you mentioned, uh, in Gandhinagar, this quaint town. Uh, and I was always interested in some of these conversations even before going to college. In some ways, it informed the place I ended up going. And it was great to have the various faculty members that Sandeep mentioned. Um, and it, I think DICT, as it is called, was this interesting place which really forced you to do what is called a rural internship. Now, different different mm. engineering institutions have instituted different formats of this sort of an internship program. But I think to my mind, and I could be completely wrong about this, but at least in Gandhinagar at this institute, it was compulsory to do so, right? And that's how I landed up in central mm-hmm. India, in Bastar, uh, doing internships and thinking about what does it mean to do data collection on with people uh, with differing capacities to collect data in communities where, say, the base 10 system is not used and so on and so forth. So that sparked some of the curiosities even further, like Sandeep earlier said, that the sort of the faculty environment and the coursework environment was germane enough uh, to not necessarily make a switch switch from X to Y, but to think X or think about X uh, in a little more sort of fuller sense. Uh, while Sandeep, as you mentioned, went to Delhi, I was uh, able to go to Chicago mostly to explore what it means to do a social study of science and technology. Um, I was thinking that, oh, I know a little bit about databases. This is when, in some ways, at the coursework level, uh, coursework on natural language processing, machine learning, artificial neural networks was beginning to be offered uh, at engineering institutions, something that I had myself uh, taken interest in. Mm. Um, so there was a part computational social science interest in switching over or moving to social sciences, though it so happened that I made a sort of a complete turn, not necessarily a turn, but a clarification of uh, what kind of episto-onto uh, 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 approach works, and that's how I landed up at Chicago. Uh, wrote about data, data systems, use of data by uh, the British colonial state in India, thinking about the specific legislation that perhaps the li- listeners may not know, the Criminal Tribes Act of India, 1871. Um, I had the opportunity to engage with both the classics and post-colonial theory and anthropology of South and history of South Asia, but to bring it in conversation with, um, I think, one of your one of your uh, committee members, uh, Bauker, uh, Bauker's work on classification. So that mm. sort of that's where how this sort of started. I've worked between the my masters and PhD uh, in these areas, both in the U.S. and India. Okay. Uh, but that and that work was in some ways informed by uh, some of these questions to return for a more 
Fuller PhD project. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. me. Okay, so this is slightly tangential to the book itself, but what you both just described, I didn't know about the, the way that you were trained in your undergrad, um, but I think it would be of in interest to our listeners um, on the STS channel, which is, um, do you think that doing these internships um, in some ways is also, is also a new and interesting way of approaching tech? technological or STEM education and practice, because um, I certainly didn't have this luxury um, of going, you know, back and forth or, you know, even just having a glimpse into another world rather than the one that, you know, where I was being trained in. So I'm just wondering if this internship component, at least for the both of you, if not for your peers, um, contributed also to how then yeah absolutely and to just to add that uh, while internship uh, was one component DIICT overall was this uh, wonderful experiment in how you could create an institute just focused on one discipline information and communication technology they never made any departments there was no department of electronics no department of STS and everyone was supposed to do four core courses uh, approaches to Indian society in the first semester, which was uh, essentially an anthropological introduction to South Asia. Uh, second was principles of economics. Uh, third semester, you do STS, science, technology, and society. And fourth, you do ecology, right? And fifth semester onwards, there's a whole bouquet of electives to pick from. So from I did modernity, modernism, and art with Akash, with Shivishnathan uh, once, also did culture, politics, identity. I believe uh, Akash also uh, did some other electives with Professor Ganesh Devi as well. He will speak to that. But the overall structure of uh, the engineering program was meant to uh, correct something that the dominant IIT imaginary of technical and engineering education in India had long lost. Uh, how successful uh, the DA experiment has been uh, is... Uh, is a longer is a different conversation, but it has produced some excellent STS scholars. And if I can, uh, if I may, just take a few names within the U.S. academia, we have Rahul Mukherjee, who's an associate professor at UPenn, who's who's our college senior, uh, Ranjit Singh, who's at Data and Society, is also our college senior, and and there are many others as well. So uh, there are some good bright spots that that experiment has definitely created. Yeah. I second Sandeep in that the lack of department was definitely a conscious choice. It was a, I mean, in that regional context, it is considered a, a experiment in higher, fourth wave of experiment in higher education. In some ways, it precedes the other experiment were kind of started around the same time or slightly later, which is Ashoka in the north, Ahmedabad around there. Uh, and uh, other other such higher education experiments where by then the full uh, focus on liberal arts or a more integrated education was uh, fairly well, I guess, entrenched or fairly well acknowledged. So I guess if you were to give some credit to the designers of that institutions, I guess they saw some of the, they anticipated perhaps some of the debates that have animated uh, conversations rather globally, not just in, in India or other places. 
And I think the internship component and the fact that you had to, for, you were sort of engineering students were essentially forced to do take courses that they would not have otherwise uh, had chosen to, I think that played a role. Awesome. So now talking about the book that we're all here for today, um, it's been a while since this book came out, right? It came out early this year and it's been in production for some time as well. So for the benefit of our listeners, Sandeep, could you tell us how and why this book was conceptualized and what was the moment or the state of the tech discourse in India at the time? And sort of what what did you imagine that this book would contribute to um, by starting this conversation? Sure. So uh, this book is a product of the larger Lives of Data project that I did at Sarai starting on 1st January 2015 as a research associate. And uh, on on that very day, uh, Ravi Sundaram, Ravi Vasudev and me and the whole team, we're sitting in Sarai's office wondering uh, how to approach this new wave of debate around data and how to approach it in in the Indian context and what are the critical sites, how do we map them, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, what ended up happening, uh, obviously we didn't have a book in mind back then, what ended up happening during the course of my fieldwork, which is from January 2015 to July 2017, uh, is that I uh, uh, spent a lot of time uh, in Delhi, Bangalore, different rural sites, following many different kinds of data practitioners. So from government uh, offices to NGO offices to uh, open data meetups to uh, tech startups working with the state or pure tech startups working just for capital uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And during this whole process, what I realized was that there was already a, a, a well-articulated academic uh, discourse on big data and its critique coming emerging from uh, what we understand as the modern West. And uh, there was a very uh, rapidly growing discourse of the state, that what the state can do with data, data-driven governance, evidence-based policymaking, uh, smart cities, digital India, Aadhaar, and there are tens of slogans that they all come up with very regularly, right? Uh, and the third, uh, or the fourth being uh, third, I guess, the uh, discourse of the industry, that this is the new frontier for India to leapfrog uh, something that we haven't been able to do uh, for a while. So this, this leapfrogging idea that no matter we didn't have the personal computer or email or whatever. Now with smartphone, we are equipped to do something that anyone else in any other part of the world is this imaginary. Uh, and trying to map the practices uh, that this imaginary was inspiring on the ground and the huge gaps in between them, like puzzling gaps in between them, sort of uh, made me realize and, uh, that we need a wide range of experts to weigh in on this. So that, that's, that's how the Lives of Data workshop came into being. Of course, coming from an engineering background, I was always sensitive about that uh, we, we cannot just, uh, like, there is, there is a, a technical materiality, logic, expertise, and so on and so forth, about how these systems are put together and, and what the engineers do day in and day out. So that familiarity helped shape that 
how to have this conversation with different kind of experts. For example, I didn't have any idea uh, before getting into it that how, for example, NGOs that work in education or health work with the state uh, over for projects of data-driven governance or how a startup may be funded in Singapore working in Delhi with two, three different ministries doing uh, making dashboards for them, what kind of... Uh, tools and subjectivities they bring on to the table. So the broad idea was to create, find a room where we can have these conversations with a bunch of different experts and see what comes out of it. And this conversation happened in uh, January 2017 with the first Lives of Data workshop. And uh, most of the essays in this book are from the people who presented at the workshop. There were various others, and we, I'll speak about it at a later point, maybe. Uh, but that workshop and the conversations that happened there reaffirmed that this is something important and we need to uh, take it forward and take it forward with this range of experts to open up this conversation instead of just producing another cycle of critique of tech discourse. Yeah. Fascinating. So I have a follow-up question uh, about what you said because that's the other, other sense or something interesting that I feel uh, comes with studying, say, for example, whatever we call broadly data or big data stuff, right? Which is that there's, there's always this um, notion of acceleration um, and speed and temporality, right? So when you might have started asking these questions or like the first meeting that you mentioned, um, there was something going on. And then uh, by the time perhaps that the workshop was done and then further when the book came out, um, things might have shifted a bit. I know this is like a, a broad timeline to reflect on, but um, do you have a sense of, mm, this is a really sort of deep question, I'm sorry, but like, what does it mean to reflect on lives of data? Like, have you gotten a sense of um, what the project did in hindsight? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, I've been trying to grapple with it uh, because also the transition from the book to my PhD research, etc. made me reflect on this more closely. Uh, but uh, and the events around uh, the book launch and the conversations that that also sparked is that uh, some like people who, who work on these things, they, uh, all three of us and various yeah. others, are deeply familiar with all the contingencies that were there on the on this pathway, mm -hmm. right? What appears like a trajectory in hindsight, we uh, very clearly know how how uh, many ways it could have been different, right? How in many ways it could have been different. Uh, for example, just yeah. Aadhaar, uh, my first rural STS ethnography project in February 2011 was on biometric ration card project in Gujarat, in Banaskanta, right? And the whole reason that project was being done was central govern union government wasn't allowing the then Gujarat state government to uh, allow Aadhaar, deploy Aadhaar back then. So they just came up with their whole new system of biometric ration cards so that uh, the power of what, what these things could mean for uh, larger questions, deeper questions of history, development, governance, uh, and so on, was sort of emerging on the scene, right? Uh, I probably didn't anticipate that they would grow so fast, so quickly. Uh, also, one of the uh, 
logical shifts happens along the way when smartphones really become G2015, 2016 onwards. And that energizes a whole range of uh, entrepreneurial actors and venture capitalists and so on and so forth who jump into this space, right? Uh, but if we look at this trajectory of, let's say, last 10 years, 2010 to 2020, uh, the COVID, COVID created some special circumstances. Maybe we can discuss it later. But just 2010 to 20, what has happened is transformational, absolutely. But if we unpack it, uh, it was never destined to happen this way only. That is one of the key lessons that I have learned, uh, that there are so many things that I thought back in 2011 uh, when I first saw people struggle with their biometric fingerprints. And there have been so many moments in the last 10 years, I was like, oh my God, yes, I knew it back then, uh, right? So, uh, and obviously uh, as researchers, we have very little say in the dominant discourse of these uh, technologies and these systems, but as observers, yes, there have been many moments where I've been puzzled and uh, also uh, many of the fears have been reaffirmed and yeah, that's the broad story. Nice. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you. And we can maybe come back a little bit later to um, then what does it mean to do this kind of research, um, especially from quote unquote global south vantage points? uh, And how do we perhaps trouble the project of theorizing science and technology? But uh, before that, let's talk about the meat of the book, right? So for our listeners who might not have checked out uh, the book yet, the book is open access. So you can just go and download it from the Institute of Network Cultures uh, website. Um, And the book is structured along thematic segments, namely histories, forms, political designs, practice, uh, practices and fields with an introduction by Sandeep and a foreword by media theorist uh, Ravi Sundaram. Before we dive into the different sections, Sandeep, would you mind speaking to the structure as well as the range of topics covered? Because I don't think we will have the time to talk about each and every single essay. Um, But, you know, how did you go about uh, both organizing the book and also what range of topics did you get when you did the workshop as well as the book? So... The workshop uh, got together, uh, was was able to bring together a range of uh, experts in different, different fields. And we tried to, uh, immediately after the workshop, try to conceptualize what would be the best way to put it together, maybe just digitally or, or the book uh, and what kind of uh, conversation are we trying to push forward with it? Do we want to uh, include... Uh, uh, X number of practitioners, Y number of historians, stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? So there was a lot of thinking that went into uh, doing this. And there were a lot of contingencies as well that uh, there are only so many people when it comes to research on these topics in India, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, right? Uh, this is a key difference which perhaps uh, listeners from the US or Europe would uh, might not be mm-hmm. aware of that STS as a disciplinary formation is a very different trajectory in South Asia and India. So, uh, and because it was becoming a sort of hot topic by that time, there are a lot of people who were ready to write about commenting on it and so on and so forth. But we wanted to have a different kind of conversation, something to open things up rather than a conversation ender that this is a surveillance state or this is data colonialism, which are all partially correct, but uh, they sort of, 
and the possibility of further research rather uh, don't help us inquire further as to how and why these things are happening at this point of history and in this particular place, right? Um, so with that broad uh, uh, imaginary in mind, we, uh, I believe the sections were fairly flexible till towards the end. So one of the things was that I didn't want to create a section titled Aadhaar, right? right? Uh, because that is one of the things that has happened in tech discourse in India that, uh, of course, it's one of the most important developments of contemporary India. But how can we talk about it differently, right? Uh, that was the challenge. So while there are several chapters that are they talk about other, they I have tried to create different loops and different sort of uh, scales at which we get to the topic, while also highlighting other kinds of sensibilities and subjectivities that go into making this kind of project. Right? It's not Nandan Nilikani wakes up one day and just prays to God and boom. Uh, Right. Yeah. Uh, so that was the broad idea. Other than that, were uh, various contingencies who was able to uh, submit on time. There were some who weren't, and eighty uh, percent of the book was ready by summer twenty seventeen. But then uh, it took a whole life of its own. But uh, mm-hmm. it it sort of uh, in its current design. I'm glad that we are able to include practitioners and different kinds of disciplinary vantage points without having a strict boundary or uh, section that section A, we will only talk about uh, XYZ, section B, uh, ABC, something like that. So that that sort of mixing and uh, sort of displacing of dominant existing categories was key for me. I'm sure Akash can also add something here because he was also part of the conversation. Sure. Yeah, I think in some ways, um, uh, Sandeep being in Delhi and me, well, one on the one hand, the academic experience of getting trained in doing social science research, but I just happened to do work in volunteering on data projects and I did, ended up working for the city of Chicago, actually. Uh, so in that sense, I think Sandeep and I, and Sandeep and I were in conversation about these very practices. So one of the things we remember discussing uh, as early as 2013 is about what when machine learning models are deployed on uh, data systems in government settings, what are the ways in which you know racial, ethnic, and other kinds of biases come up uh, in practice? I obviously didn't neither did I have neither did I have the voice nor the sort of the bandwidth to be attentive to these questions in a more formal academic sense. These were part and parcel of conversations which were already happening at a certain sort of, I wouldn't call it stage, but phase of uh, socio-technical situation. Uh, I'm uncomfortable using the word advancement. Mm. While uh, Mm. I was in conversation with somebody who's looking at the rapid proliferation of uh, these smartphone-led, data-led futures, as it were. Um, I wanted to just throw in a reference here uh, uh, related to what you guys were discussing just a while ago on this, uh, on this, the relationality of different temporalities that are sort of baked into various moments, right? It brings to mind the work of uh, Reinhard Koselleck, uh, Futures uh, Past, Right, uh, 
so in some ways the in some ways the my pragmatic or work experience sort of dovetailed a lot with how Sandeep and the conversations around Sandeep at Sarai were sort of uh, shaping up. Nice. Uh, Nupur, sorry, if I may just add one more thing. Yeah. Uh, to the credit of the institute where all this uh, emerged at Sarai and CSDS, uh, we didn't have to struggle with making it too formal, academic, or too practice-oriented to begin with. This was to very clear to begin with that we have to open up a conversation and we have to include as many people as uh, possible and as many disciplinary uh, stances as possible. So that very much helped because... Uh, by that time, the debate or so-called uh, critical data studies was already, uh, uh, one was already reading about that. And uh, I had certain anxieties about responding to those debates, right? So many of those anxieties were also eased by uh, my presence and my uh, location at an institution which uh, could think things more expansively. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, uh, that's what I was reflecting on is, and this could totally just be my feeling and my perception, um, you know, because I come from some similar context as the both of you. Uh, I have some uh, understanding of how Sarai uh, operates as a space. I have some understanding of the STS community scene, whatever you want to call it in India. But uh, what heartens me about you know, a book like this, or even seeing and participating in workshops uh, to some extent in India, um, is the fact that I I always feel a certain sense of uh, flexibility, malleability, um, and and a general, I guess, porous sense of like the the amount of you know, say for example, uh, if I'm speaking back to the platform governance stuff in the U.S. right, uh, because a lot of my research was around platforms. Um, there, I guess, is a certain institutional contours to how to participate, mm-hmm. how to be heard, what language you have to respond to, and so on and so forth, um, which which does get frustrating because uh, it's really hard to break from that position of marginality or, uh, or, or somehow to foreground something that people might think are minor histories and so on and so forth. Um, but I feel like, again, with the setup and how the book came out, my sense is that here, the kind of people that you've uh, collected under the book project is, you know, practitioners, journalists, um, academics, all kinds of people. And it's not in the sense that, uh, you know, journalists or practitioners can't speak as sophisticated or, or can't think as critically as academics claim to do. Um, is that the sense that you also get? Yes, absolutely. And that was uh, something that was very clear. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, in even in 2015, uh, by the end of the year, so after one whole year of research, uh, in 2016, when we first started thinking about the workshop, was uh, this was like the centerpiece that how do we get people into this conversation who might be working with data, who might be following data on say health or on say some government welfare scheme or uh, open data city maps, right? Because uh, what in a way, this shift of uh, big data, quote-unquote, big data revolution does is try to promise a stable data object and futures that can be imagined around that object. So the primary task sort of begin uh, sort uh, for us was to how do we displace this object because in terms of practices, there is no such unitary object, right? 
so how do we bring uh, uh, fine tune the discourse practice gap and that you can only do by bringing a diversity of people in because uh, as an individual i can only do so much research on yeah. uh, how data is being practiced on but i like 20 people in a workshop and then later on the process of going through various drafts and all we really got uh, something like a kaleidoscopic view of what this shift is about and how to follow it yeah hmm. akash do you want to add to this yeah i had a as i often say half formed thought on it uh, i often think about mm-hmm. this uh, I like that you use the term porousness or porosity, right? It says something potentially about formalization at large in the sense that, I mean, you think about Sarai, CSDS, uh, you think about a general like the EPW, right? Um, A place, a conversation where journalists can write different kinds of researchers are able to come in and write instead of it being an econ journal or a political science journal or an anthro journal, right? And there's something interesting about the politics, academics, academics, activist, academics, advocacy kind of spaces that uh, are available to us, if I can pull you in, as coming from the space that we call the subcontinent or India, if I may, today. And I think it has some relationship to formalization or lack of it, and perhaps the value of a keeping some open space of informality. Uh, but it's a half-formed uh, half thought, so I'll leave it at that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. (laughs) No, I love that. I I mean, we all don't want to romanticize because there's obviously so many problems with every every formal practice. But uh, at least in this moment, uh, um, based on where our other reflection points might be, I certainly am with you in terms of like, I like this, you know, I like how a lot of different people, um, and I'm specifically thinking of, for example, Carl's, Carl Mendonca's uh, essay in the book as well, right? And Carl is in cinema and media studies. Um, and, and and this isn't typically how or um, the kinds sure. of people who come together under perhaps other rubrics uh, where we talk about STS. Um, Sandeep, do you want to... Now we'll come to your introduction essay. Um, and I just uh, had this question, which is that you emphasize how an intellectual project such as this book reminds us how not all computational cultures have the same 
historical origins or even trajectories. And in this case, the backdrop to computational visions and developments is certainly not one of the military industry complex, but perhaps something else. Um, and you specifically point to India's statistical ambitions as a new post-colonial independent state. Um, and then subsequently, the overlapping projects of international development, uh, and more recently, the IT revolution and the state-led drive towards datafication as well. You emphasize context and data relationalities in your introduction as key to understanding the present conditions of our datafied lives. For SDS scholars, it is not new to hear about the uh, about context or socio-technical imaginaries or even relationality. Those are words that we use often. Uh, but I want to invite you to flesh out what those nudges uh, and that emphasis mean, particularly for this book, and perhaps even to build a more global heterogeneous map for theorizing datafication that is also attentive to, um, I really like the word that you use, infrastructural fragmentation, uh, contingency, as well as the multiple scales at which data visions are being worked out. Right. Um, thanks. Thanks for uh, this kind reading of this introduction, uh, which obviously is uh, easily the most difficult uh, thing I've ever ever written uh, <laughs> to to represent the work of uh, four, 14 people and uh, to also address and pull people who otherwise who do not have anything to do with uh, critical data studies or big data or AI into this conversation as a conversation that is uh, needs uh, some form of expansion, right? So uh, the Indian context of uh, these developments, uh, one could have gone even further uh, down the line of what the colonial state was doing or what um, ha was happening, I mean, during uh, decades before the 90s uh, liberalization and globalization, sure. right? I picked uh, the two points uh, around the post uh, the moment of decolonization and post-colonial nation building being one, and second, the contemporary, just as a way of provocation mm. uh, that... Uh, what we imagine to be so new and so um, cutting edge in terms of what the state wants to do as if welfare was invented after Aadhaar, uh, right? That was one of the key motivations to push back against this uh, newness of the state and state's practices within India. And then also to uh, create an outline of a global history uh, or, or a global map of where these debates are happening and what is at stake where. Um, and also, uh, one should add here that STS as a discipline, how it interfaces with other disciplines in India is informing a lot that is in this introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, STS doesn't quite exist as a formal degree uh, in India. There are a few research centers here and there, people who float between tech policy, media studies, anthropology, soci anthropology, sociology being one and the same in India. And, and so that creates a different sensibility towards how to approach these objects for uh, research and theory. Uh, and the social movements that have uh, inspired STS, right from Narmada to uh, various movements that have gone around Aadhaar and so on, yeah. right? 
So how do you pull those threads into a conversation? And as you uh, and you and Akash had just had this uh, wonderful conversation about temporalities and uh, these different uh, breaks in the futures and the futures past, how do you how do you mark time to suggest that this is an important shift? Mm-hmm. And how do we pay attention to these shifts in what could be hundreds of ways, but we have these few 14, 15 ways of looking for you here, and this is why they matter. Uh, while also uh, being careful about the lack of familiarity of STS with the plurality of epistemes and cultural imaginaries of technology. Absolutely. Right? We, we uh, draw upon a lot of STS, which makes our scholarship possible, but we are both we are all acutely and painfully aware of how comfortable uh, uh, STS scholarship is about its uh, self-critique of post-war formations of uh, scientific and technological institutions in Europe and America, yeah. right? And it, there's also an element of it somehow sort of ended up inheriting the, the suffering slot imaginary where everywhere else where technology is not being innovated or invented upon mm. is sort of always on the wrong side of the bargain of these technologies. They are more at risk. Their bodies are more at risk to chemicals, to radiation or to uh, uh, lack of uh, scientific uh, checks and balances or state politics and so on, which are all partially correct, Mm. right? Uh, But there is a lot more going on the ground. And how do you put that in contact with the larger global developments? That was the challenge. Fantastic. I I do want to make a small point to just push that uh, later emphasis that Sandeep is making. Sure. About uh, STS. uh, uh, So... Uh, I do not remember the title of the piece, but Sandeep's current advisor, Arjun uh, Apadurai, has a mm-hmm. piece which is a critique of the kinds of questions anthropologists ask or have asked historically mm-hmm. in relation to the kinds of places that they go and study, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so if you go to South Asia, anthropologists will study hierarchy. Mm. They'll study gift in Polynesian islands and so on and so forth, right? So it's a nice sort of mapping that Arjun does about how places uh, make researchers for some reason anticipate what they must uh, study uh, in a certain place. I think mm. I think there's some one of the ways in which and to here I want to bring this other. Uh, conversation that Sandeep and I were part of, and it was a continuous sort of a back and forth, which is that is the title of the book, Lies of Data, uh, mm-hmm. Computational Cultures in India, or is it from India to the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. to give it a marketing flip, right? Now, the from and in question or the from and in debate is related to this other, the Sandeep's emphasis on the STS that, yes, while STS makes the scholarship possible, uh, we were also trying to sort of uh, now to invoke Arjun's mapping is that uh, India being this place is simultaneously a place of innovation and deployment and imposition of all sorts of other things that are imagined, designed and set up elsewhere. But can we sort of push back against it as a receptor of certain kinds of technical practices, right? Um so that's something that I wanted to sort of mention or add. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. And while you were speaking, I was thinking of, I, I mean, I can't remember the reference for the life of me, but I do remember, I think early sociology and critiques of sociology in India kind of also zoomed into how the village had become, for example, an analytic for so long, right? And and I do wonder, um, slightly tangentially and relatedly, uh, but also thinking from my own work right now um, and how there are often these half-formed thoughts about uh, geopolitics when talking about um, tech and social justice and other kinds of things, uh, is, is that, you know, people will sort of slightly indicate and point to how there are tendencies to um, to reify and then hence also crit- critique and criticize certain nation states as uh, bearers of certain technological ideologies or legacies and so on. Uh, but those those formations and those uh, articulations are also uncomfortably uh, yoked to the ways in which academic funding and institutional practices work, right? So uh, one often, I mean, this is a, a very candid sort of thought that I'm having based on what you guys are saying is that um, one often wonders how do you make a case to be able to study whatever it is in India uh, with regard to science and technology? And, you know, often the implications or justifications that you have to provide, I think, kind of push us to somehow, sometimes rehearse that language. I don't know if you felt that too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh I mean, uh, I had a sort of uh, different trajectory that uh, I was just in India till 2017 uh, while trying, while living through this tension of following all kinds of STS, uh, digital research, uh, new media studies and so on from here and trying to do this back and forth in my head of uh, what, what I feel compelled to respond to or participate in or even think about, right? And... Uh, one uh, benefit of the engineering background uh, so and there was that it it allowed for a playful look between the yeah. uh, what do you call say dramas of technology and society broadly conceived that uh, uh, a, a certain uh, non-deterministic stance that so it created a suspicion for that because a lot of these uh, positioning of work uh, because we have to make a compelling argument or say something bold uh, can easily uh, veer towards a slightly deterministic take about what's going on. Uh, So that determinism never uh, emerged as a big problem. Uh, On the other hand, the funding and the dominant discourse uh, in India, a lot of these uh, actors are incredibly close to the state, right? right. Uh, whether it was the dominant post-colonial uh, science uh, as a reason of the state, or it is the contemporary uh, folks from Bangalore who decide how we should get everything from wheat to vaccine, mm. uh, right? So that, in a sense, makes... Uh, the object of critique slightly uh, different from what it is that maybe some independent lab is doing somewhere or some independent tech company, which is they have all uh, have deep relations with the state. Nonetheless, the scale of the relation here between tech and the state and the dominant politics of the state is is uh, requires a different approach. So that sort of helps these. Uh, but yeah, it's a struggle and. Uh, 
we all uh, struggle continue to struggle with it with every new turn every new uh, wave it introduces different uh, sort of language and how to negotiate that language with the a certain dominant west and a certain dominant uh, state politics here yeah um sandeep your own essay in the volume is it offers us an uh, what you call a historical anthropology of computing from somewhere um something that you argues goes beyond simply calling computerization as a natural stage or transformation or evolution that all nation states have gone through at some point um even in this history that is pegged around the statistician mahalanobis's visions of statistics and state planning you ask us to begin to decenter computers as the object partially because if the instinct is to study histories of computing then uh, that only begin to or seek to locate where and what computers did as objects then we might actually produce a feeble history um pegged around deficit or you know when or whether a certain technology proliferated right um but you instead foreground relationalities and entanglements and i really felt that um it was almost relieving to view computers as embedded in a larger um nationalist and biopolitical project and i feel like this is a challenge we keep hitting again uh when we're tasked with studying technological phenomena outside of the us uk europe etc cetera, etc cetera, where um either some of these objects uh, are absolutely absent uh, or have completely different valence based on how and why they got introduced to that context so do you want to tell us more about the essay and and maybe just tell us like how you thought about it sure um yeah thank you um, again for a uh, very generous reading of of the essay and i'm glad that that uh, key thrust is coming across because mm. uh, midway uh, mm. through my research i really i believe somewhere mm. in the jungles of jharkhand uh, when i wrote in my diary what is a computer anyway uh, right because there uh, there i was following uh, tech startup and government agencies and international philanthropic organizations doing tablet based surveys uh, in tribal areas in uh, various other rural areas and going to places where there's no electricity and they would uh, have to come back uh, to the district headquarters to charge their tablets and then go back and and uh, there are various other technological uh, affordances that had to be put together by the startup to make sure that this thing works and i was like what is a computer and why is it so desired and uh, while i was presenting this work uh, in one of the internal workshops at csds mm-hmm. i was directed to look at prasanth chandra mahalanobis's work i knew of him and i knew that he did pioneering work in survey research but as soon as i discovered his archive that's like uh, towards the end of 2015 mm. right i started reading the journals uh, uh, sankhya the journal he edited from uh, in statistical institute just the whole history of that institute in itself is so fascinating and people have written about it uh, it's it's a great uh, uh, example of how science was happening in mid 20th century in places like india but uh, i really got interested when i uh, read about how mahalanobis was so motivated to get import computers and make computers here and make his statisticians the uh, statistical workers into human computers right some place i quote uh, from him that uh, he's like 
to to be a good statistician you need mm-hmm. to i'm paraphrasing you first need to be a good computer and in, and in that time he's meaning he says human computers now one was familiar with this human to machine transition in the west and there is a very important debate about gender and the history of computing uh, there uh, in the indian case these are all informal uh, workers uh, who malanobis is training over the years and he being uh, a brown elite uh, is able to and also someone very close to nehru uh, after independence he's able to bring all these resources together and do all this work but uh, so anyway well, all the all of his writings has uh, have uh, great details about what he was doing with each specific model of computer what he was noting down in the survey forms how different uh, survey respondents were responding to different kinds of tabular sort of style of questions and and different translations right uh, so all those details and the details that i was encountering in my field work with these tech startups doing smartphone and tablet based surveys and i was looking at i was mm-hmm. like wow in 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 comparing these two what is a computer anyway right uh, that question was very liberating uh, it made me uh, move away from the dominant uh, history of this hardware centered uh, understanding of who which white man invented what uh and uh in a global sense as well without looking at this sort of history of computing as a set of practices in, uh, embedded in different institutional and sociocultural context we are stuck with the vantage point of that dominant uh, history of computing style work where uh even if you have to look at something contemporary uh there is a implied uh, trajectory from tech transfer to it industry and various other garden variety of predictable futures of what computing would do in various parts of the world yeah, yeah. absolutely um i'm not sure if you have uh, also you're also familiar with this work but i recently uh, read um, UPenn professor Prajit Mukherjee's uh, work on Malanobish uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, his earlier i think inventions or his forays into what he what he saw and thought would be sort of an anti-colonial response to um profiling technology so that was another sort of just something that i i thought of when i read your essay was that of course there's so much written about this proverbial uh father of indian statistics etc but uh, it made me reflect on the fact that um the same person and of course depending on the context within which technological innovation is being thought about um uh, has so many different uses purposes uh, beginnings and end points right like and to just simply for example from my perspective and from where i research things uh to come to mahala nobish's invention such as the profiloscope which in some ways is really just um like some of these earlier um like colonial you know beginnings to ai or face recognition type of things it's not enough to just say yes of course there was face profiling going on i think mm-hmm. the the animating questions that actually result in um technological innovation which is sometimes even perhaps accidental or ad hoc um are give us so much more context in terms of understanding uh, computing practices absolutely yeah um moving on to akash's essay akash um 
As I mentioned earlier uh, for our listeners, the volume has 14 essays in total and they're all really fantastic. Uh, but today, since we have you here, I want to jump to the last section in the book, which gathers ethnographic accounts of data analytics. Um, it's quite interesting that both of our essays, yours and mine, get at the materiality of information systems. We can talk about that in a minute, but first I want to invite you to briefly summarize your essay and tell what tell us what the central argument is. So broadly, uh, what the essay does is that it looks at a, a office in a place somewhere in India that I called uh, Data Nagar, um, where newer management information system is being introduced with the uh, purpose and object of ensuring that across the department's operation, this government agency's operations, there is a sort of a single source uh, or source of truth slash information that becomes available uh, compared to a, to a proliferating uh, use Sandeep stump semi-digital architecture or infrastructure of uh, information moving around. Now, as, and I apprehend this situation, I happen to be in this situation as part of a long winding project. What I became interested is in understanding more and better about not the bleeding edge technical practices. So say something like how can we use uh, scores of uh, students as ways to predict uh, which group of kids might be highly likely to uh, drop out or something. Uh, because as, we, as you both know and other listeners may know, we are also seeing a lot of that kind of work. But uh, I became interested in sort of this sort of in-between space or perhaps a transitioning uh, phase on the one hand about how bureaucracies digitize or digitalize mm -hmm. or how bureaucracies transition because you know bureauc bureaucratic institutions are sticky for good and bad reasons right so when media objects media technologies are introduced what are the ways in which they change if at all they do so on and so forth. now and through that what i then sort of end up arguing largely now in hindsight is essentially a a, a reminder of the fact that new we don't have a rupturous mm -hmm. break in sort of historical flow as well that there is like a rupture and recuper recuperation between say in this case uh, media technologies right so say thinking with lisa gettleman's work uh, not just on the pdf which i directly engage with uh, in the text but also her other text on how once old media were new right uh, so that's broadly what I became interested in. And obviously, again, Paul Durish has and a few other people have written on this beast called MS Access, Excel. But as I keep telling Sandeep, that we don't know enough about it and what the, the really, really lion's share of uh, role it plays in contemporary, and I would say not India, but global sort of data practices right so it was a one more one of the one of the yeah. efforts to sort of you know take a stab at that add to a hopefully an increasing amount of work so as a follow-up it's uh, both fascinating and also not surprising how so many information management systems that promise seamlessness automation um, less human labor engagement and messiness in fact, these systems, uh, the digital systems, do the exact opposite, right? Even based on uh, some of my own new research explorations, I remember going into a police records bureau and discovering how the switch to digital systems 
uh, from paper-based records, for example, has not only been a one-step solution, but has um, also generated, you know, its own set of dashboards and systems that um, then don't contain all the existing annotating practices or the socio-material relationships, which then continue to happen via paper notes, post-its, WhatsApp communications, screenshots, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but beyond just saying that digitization does not replace or do away with paper records and practices, what else do you make of um, this hybrid state of bureaucracy or bureaucratic practices um, that a lot of digital administrative systems are currently suspended in? Uh, tough question, but I'll take a step. So one, I feel that uh, definitely it's a methodological lesson and approach, uh, which is that as researchers, I guess we should avoid the seduction of digital media. Obviously, the world is awash and mm-hmm. saturated with the promise of a... Uh, I go back actually to a reference, I think, uh, that Matthew Holt cites in his book on Pakistan about another text which talks about how a paperless office is as real or as possible as a paperless uh, toilet. Now, obviously, this is, you know, both of you being from India, it's still a limited metaphor. <laughs> but as also both <laughs> of you and me included, people who have been in North America, we can relate to what Hulse writing there, right? Uh, second, which is a little more, perhaps a little more important or a little more uh, valuable is that form matters. As one starts shaving off a lot of like the technical details, and so on and so forth, a little bit in some ways in how Sandeep was talking about decentering hardware, I think the persistence of the entanglements of different mm. media ecologies is yet another reminder that researchers should, I guess, distinguish between form and function and perhaps focusing a lot more on forms is helpful and more sort of generative. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, if I were to sort of do a devil's advocate on me, I think your question is important. And it's a question that we should all uh, keep asking is that, okay, this is happening. But then let's say from uh, international development and development studies uh, between uh, James Card, James Ferguson and Tanya Lee, we kind of have a sense of this, if not cyclical, but some sort of a back and forth journey of X happens, X is intended to Y, do Y, Y doesn't happen, but that does a negative feedback of sorts into an X dash (laughs) that is redeployed to Y, but by that time, situation Y has Mm. become Y dash, right? Um, Now, obviously, and I mean, Tanya obviously uses this term rendering technical, but is attending to a lot of other uh, other aspects of the social life. But it's a, I think some of that work in development studies is still helpful in thinking about you know, negative feedback and cybernetics and stuff. Um, That's great. Yeah. Um, I guess the what I really appreciate about all of us talking today is, again, this feeling that I've been sitting with and I think uh, people find less and less problematic or more generative ways to point to is because I don't I don't find the framing of repair or broken infrastructures or um, a lot of those terms very comforting because I 
much like both of you have perhaps lived and come out of a context where, as you said, all these things are constantly both in the process of being worked out. But even while uh, a form becomes dominant temporarily, um, there's always practices around it that are uh, refusing to just um, be subsumed under a technological form for that example. Um, so I really appreciate that. And I, I hope that we can find going forward better or or more accurate ways to to stay with this constant process. Mm-hmm. Nupur, I'm sorry. Uh, just uh, one small anecdote related to Excel and what you just said about practices and how these things are constantly being worked out. So uh, thick of Delhi winter, January 2015 in Hoskas village in a big data uh, meetup, um, uh, a person says, and this is for benefit of our listeners who understand Hindi, says, uh, rubbing his hands saying, भाई साहब बिग डेटा जब आएगा जब आएगा दुनिया एमएस एक्सेल पे कायम है सो रफली ट्रांसलेट्स टू बिग डेटा विल कम व्हेनेवर इट विल कम दोस डिस्कोर्सेस वी आर दीस गाइस आल्सो रीड द गार्टनर रिपोर्ट्स दैट इट्स कमिंग इट्स कमिंग बट आवर वर्ल्ड रन्स ऑन एक्सेल एंड दिस गाय वाज अ डेटा साइंटिस्ट या सो टू सर्कल बैक टू द लाइव्स ऑफ डेटा फ्रेमिंग both as a framing as well as the title that you've chosen. And this question is to the both of you. Uh, but there's a lot of scholarship around life or lives and data, uh, or at least the titles suggest so. Um, and all of this scholarship uh, gets to the lives and data aspects in different ways, right? So in some uh, books, uh, the emphasis could be on practice and contingency and open-endedness of data projects. Um, in some others, they draw more attention to the vitality of working with data or of data itself, uh, and perhaps even a kind of flattening or reshaping of life through and within information projects. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Sandeep, as well as Akash, is there uh, a particular valence or meaning of life or lives or living that sticks out for this book um, or for yourself when you think about this book? Uh, and within that too, you know, we have to get at the proverbial global south question. Um, is there a global south or postcolonial investment or difference in uh, that shaped how you thought of this framing as well? Uh, yes, that's a question that we all need to continuously think about, I guess. Uh, and also the part that Akash earlier mentioned about from and in mm-hmm. uh, and how to tell a global story from a certain place. Um, but Lives uh, data for uh, me was, uh, as the title of the workshop, was not that difficult a choice. Mm-hmm. Again, being at Sarai, they had already done a couple of workshops on lives of information and social uh, lives of information and maybe the many lives of Indian cinema as well. Mm-hmm. So this this sort of framing, uh, not just the word, uh, the wordly phrasing of it, but the conceptual uh, vocabulary of what it means to think about these things in a very expansive way, not as some form of what is the social impact of X technology or not what mm-hmm. is just the history of classification, for example. So that uh, framing gives us some room to maneuver uh, around that what we can be a little flexible about what kind of life and where and when we are talking about and not just re- center it to the uh, center it with relation of data in itself 
because the object, as we all know, is lively. And there is a bunch of uh, scholarship around it that shows that how messy and lively and what kind of different lives it takes and how, how static some of its lives can be, right? But on the other hand, uh, our, our lives, how they are shaped and constituted and affected and how they enter into various relations with these objects, that uh, is the more interesting part for me to uh, look at lives of data um, because, uh, I mean, 50% of India's population still doesn't have internet access approximately, right? Mm-hmm. If we look at broadband uh, access, the compute, uh, personal computer broadband-based access, the number is in single digits. Uh, yet, we have these wild imaginaries of proliferation and technological futures and data futures and so on and so forth. And I've been hearing for a decade now that it's just a matter of time when everybody will be on the internet, right? So that is a global South valence that uh, our futures are so readily shaped by uh, these technological advances. So how do we reclaim that right to shape our futures in our lives without giving it all to the impact of these technologies or the discursive power or the capital that drives these technologies? How do we retain certain agency to talk about self-crafting, subjectivity, social relations, collectives, that collectives of human-machine networks, not just uh, good old anthropocentric uh, uh, formations. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I wanted to add one thing to what Sandeep said, uh, mostly because, not because it's an important point, but mostly because of, I find the narrative fascinating is that one, this boosterism of how the internet's going to reach uh, everywhere is, as Sandeep pointed out, uh, established. But it's also quite humbling and poignant to also note the numbers that Sandeep uh, quoted that actually the increase in access has become stabilized for four or five years, uh, despite mm. the intense investment in uh, getting uh, people online. Uh, now to the to your question, Nupur, I do not have a question and response directly, but to Global South mm-hmm. and to the post-colonial question, not so much with them, because, you know, uh, as you guys may both agree to some extent, that these terms and the conversations have become oversaturated and predetermined. So to slightly stay away from them, two other categories uh, or ways of approaching, I guess, some of the same questions, which I've personally found helpful, uh, which is one is this issue of marked and unmarked language as linguistic anthropologists or linguists talk about in terms of accents and so on and so forth, right? Now, if you look at not all of it, but definitely some of the pressure of of having the burden or the predicament of responding to or operating with these categories is that they are marked in reference to something which remains unmarked, right? So global north or, yeah. you know, Sandeep and I joke about Ooh. Vina, right? What? Uh, Western Europe, North America. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, that's, you know, so calling somebody a Vina anthropologist instead of, because, you know, South Asian anthropologists are South Asian anthropologists, otherwise it's yeah. an anthropologist. Yeah. The second sort of not burden or 
a movement that I found productive in my thinking or in my approach, but I guess uh, something that I'm trying to let go is the by default comparative project that is a predicament of someone with our uh, sociobiography, right? And when I say comparative, I mean it in the mm -hmm. subfield of comparative politics, right? Where uh, on the left panel of a e-market shopping place, as it were, Western democracies are slotted as functional and so on and so forth. And on the right, you have a generation of scholars yeah. uh, coming on road trips to India to figure out how the hell are these guys surviving when we expected all of them to face, right? <laughs> but what this post-colonial global South burden does is, is that, in again, to invoke the earlier category of slotting is that it, it is that it slots us into certain kinds of comparative projects, which is also uh, in reference to some of the anxieties that Sandeep is referring, uh, was referring to earlier. And I think mm -hmm. breaking apart mm -hmm. uh, to the main question of life and lives in terms of how I was thinking definitely then uh, in a more rudimentary sense, but in a more sustained sense now is that how do we let go of this comparative project in some level? So yes, tell a global story, be in conversations uh, with everyone else, but also not have this burden that becomes uh, default for a post-colonial subject, so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm in absolute agreement and I'm just nodding vigorously because while you both were speaking, I realized that when one takes the same question and and perhaps uh, tries to answer it inwards, as in within India or wherever else, which isn't Wiener. Uh, I think one of those things that perhaps I've stopped even noticing about myself is that there are these rehearsed and well-established understandings of, you know, also institutions in crisis, right? Because wanting to do a certain kind of critical scholarship, um, even without the burdens of, say, an audience or, you know, having to look for a job somewhere, etc., uh, it has its own kinds of troubles if one wants to do this um, in a place like India. And, and by place like India, I mean in so many different ways. Uh, while our um, liberal institutions, democratic institutions, educational institutions are under attack um, for several different reasons. And of course, funding, etc. has always been an issue too. So, um, yeah, I don't have much to add, but the fact that, you know, when we look out, outward, or when we try to commune globally or intervene in certain debates, there's its own set of challenges as both of you highlighted. And I, I definitely feel that. But it also often makes me reflect on what to tell people who might just be entering, you know, or what to tell people um, who might be doing it without undertaking the same journeys. Uh, and I don't think there's obviously an easy answer. Uh, before we let you go, I'm sure we would all love to know what are you both working on currently in your PhD uh, research or otherwise, and what might we expect to see from you in the near future? It could be either a paper that is in publication or really just any idea that you've been working on that's got you really excited. Uh, sure. Uh, I have been at pain, but also I've been extremely fortunate to have significant disruptions to research over the last year, but to not have had to face the extreme anxiety of thinking about pivoting or to uh, stopping the PhD project. 
having said so, what I've preoccupied myself as mm-hmm. part of the PhD research is uh, questions of what I call uh, intra-Indian state interactions. So in a more, perhaps in a more simplistic sense, I'm trying to uh, 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 decenter what uh, scholarship on the citizens versus state, citizen-state axes has told us about states or about the Indian state. And one of the ways in which I'm trying to do is hopefully think a little more interesting about a relatively boring, mundane subject, an object of monitoring and evaluation. Uh, Conversations which have had their own sort of ongoing and parallel and at times a little even earlier or later, sorry, longer histories, but things which do get a little uh, under-emphasized in the sort of practice and promise of, you know, uh, machine learning and algorithmic decision systems and so on and so forth. I am trying to do this by hanging out with Mm. a bunch of close to the end of their career bureaucrats or senior bureaucrats um, who have looked at uh, various iterations of the Indian state's attempts at trying to think about, you know, impact of social service delivery and so on and so forth. But obviously all of these projects or these conversations are operating in tandem as, say, enterprise IT tech vendor lock-ins are happening in the name of big data, cloud, so on and so forth. The, the massive proliferation of data dashboards, mm. not just for sort of a performance publicly, but also internally. Um, so your question of publication, if I'm able to finish, maybe one thing that I am kind of trying to write about is a not a long history, but at least a near recent history of m as the m people call it. But it is all uh, in the process right now. So apologies for rambling. No, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, Akash is further down his, his fieldwork. So, uh, yeah, I uh, started in March and I'm pretty much a COVID ethnographer at this stage. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is something that uh, one will, not just me, but many of us will be immersed in for many years to come to make sense of this moment that we're living through. But my dissertation project is an ethnography of uh, computational cultures at the intersections of the state and technology startups in India, particularly in tier two and tier three cities. So uh, that's the short elevator pitch of it. But uh, overall, I've been uh, trying to wrap my head around technological futures uh, for a while. Um, And thinking ethnographically is the most generative way I have figured uh, in traversing different disciplines because I didn't have any formal academic training. uh, And my department happens to be also very interdisciplinary. So without taking on a disciplinary burden of a quote-unquote anthropology of futures, so thinking across STS, media studies, and anthropology uh, of computational cultures and futures, and to put a spin on what is uh, what has been a great body of work on the the future of work, 
I have been observing ethnographically the work that goes into making futures. Uh, and especially places that are probably not at the frontier, uh, say uh, San Francisco or Bangalore, but maybe uh, Jodhpur or Jaipur, where I belong to. And uh, so that's what the PhD is uh, all about. In terms of publications, I am sitting on a lot of material from my research tenure at Sarai, which I never got to publish because of the time and energy this book uh, <laughs> uh, took. And hopefully someday, uh, something that Akash had mentioned earlier, semi-digital computing is again something that I stumbled upon in the field of how various different digital, digital and analog paper and blah, blah systems overlap to make a uh, a sort of veneer of computing possible in development sector and governance in in various uh, areas. That's the, uh, yeah, but just lucky to have survived 2020 for now. Yeah. And 2021 so far. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it's um, the, the COVID presence and especially in India, as well as, you know, really everywhere outside the U.S., it's such a strange spectral fatiguing presence at this point that one doesn't know how to talk about it. Um, so I'm especially grateful as we close this interview that you both made time to speak with me across time zones. Um, and that, you know, I mean, this is this has been excellent, right? Um, it's a great way of communing. And I'm so grateful to also be a part of this volume and get to speak to the both of you. Um, I wish you the best of luck for whatever lies ahead. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nepal. Really appreciate it. This was really uh, um, rewarding to reflect on our mutual interest in such a generative manner. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nepal. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.